Hey, everybody. Welcome to Upon This Rock. I'm Max Thomas. Thank you for checking out the pod today. Uh, I have a really, really special episode today for a number of reasons. Um, number one, uh, I got the chance and the privilege to talk to, um, I would call him probably my favorite theologian. For sure, I think one of the two or three most impactful theologians on my own, in my own life, on my own personal journey, and that's Dr. Chris E.W. Green. Um, Dr. Green is, uh, I think his title is a public theologian at Southeastern University. He's previously taught at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary, grew up in kind of the Pentecostal movement, and so speaks a lot of that language. Um, but as the, and the reason I think he's been so influential on me is over the last few years as I've tried to kind of think through some things uh, in my own upbringing, in my own tradition, move away from some of those things, strengthen some of those things, um, he's been really kind of a leading voice in the things that he's written, in the things that he's preached to help me through that transition, to help me kind of get some new language and think about um, some kind of Pentecostal doctrine and theology and ideas in a little bit of a different light while not leaving behind Pentecostalism or kind of the charismatic movement. Um, and he has been tremendously helpful for me in that I think I have read everything that he has published in the last um, two years I've, I've read it. I can almost with certainty, certain, with certainty say that I have listened to every sermon, lecture, or presentation that he's given that's somewhere on the internet in the last two years, and I've probably listened to all to, all of them multiple times. Um, and so it was just a really, really a big treat for me to be able to to spend some time with him, get to know him a little bit, and and have um, some some really fun conversation. The other reason that this is kind of a special um, episode is the phrase that we're going to look at. Right, we're in this series on things that we should all stop saying in church. The phrase that we're going to look at today is from a sermon that he preached um, that is kind of was the genesis of, of this entire series. It's where I got the idea for this entire series is from this sermon that he preached. And so the phrase that we're looking at today is the phrase, God is in control. And I think we need to stop saying God is in control. Now, before you call me or him a heretic, uh, well, first listen to the episode. B, we can have some further conversation, or second, I should say, we, we can have some further conversation. Um, I think largely we just need to come with, up with a better way to talk about what it is that we're trying to say. And I, I want to preface this episode in a little bit of a different way than I typically will with these deep dives for um, a few reasons. Number one, specifically when we start talking about something like God's sovereignty, his providence, his control. Um, the reason that God is in control, I think, is such a terrible phrase and why we need to stop saying it, is it is dangerously simplistic and it's dangerously reductionistic. And therefore, when we're trying to talk about it, when in the, even in our conversation, when, when Dr. Green and I are trying to talk about it, we just can't fall into that same trap of simplistic language. There is no, I've heard him put it this way actually, there is no elevator pitch version of this conversation. There is no give me the 10 seconds on it. There is no boil it down to two minutes for me. That that doesn't exist. And the reason that 
the phrase God is in control is so dangerous is that's exactly what that phrase attempts to do is to boil this really complex idea and subject down into, you know, seven or eight words or whatever it is. And that's just really, really dangerous. And so I say that for this reason, we get into some more complex ideas, we get into some more complex trains of thought, and I would just encourage you to stick with it. Um, we begin the conversation talking about why the phrase God is in control is so harmful and dangerous, and so we kind of talk about the negative side of it. And then in the, the second half or the last third of the conversation, we start to build some more constructive language around, okay, what can we say and how could we say it? Um, not just what's wrong with this phrase, but what's a way forward? How could we actually talk about this in a positive way? And so, again, I don't want you to get lost or bogged down or feel like this is over your head because we do get somewhere that I think everyone will be able to understand and grasp, and it's pretty simple, actually, um, when, when you get there at the end. There's at least, I think, a f maybe a better way to put it, there's a few simple ideas that everybody can, can grasp. But I purposely didn't want to just reduce the conversation down to the lowest common denominator because then we would end up in all kinds of trouble uh, again. So I just wanted to preface that up, up front because this, is, this will be a little bit more of a, a challenging conversation, I think, in, in a few different points. But it's a wonderful conversation. I had a great time talking with him. I think it's going to be really, really helpful. I can't wait to get some feedback. Like always, this is meant to be a conversation. And so in the show notes below is a link where you can leave a digital voicemail for me. I would love follow-up questions on this. I would love pushback um, on this. I would love some nuance or some additions on this. And this might end up spawning a whole separate episode of just follow-up conversation because this is, this is such a big topic. So, uh, But with that, I'll get out of the way and let's uh, get into my conversation with Dr. Chris Green about why we should stop saying God is in control. Okay, well, um, Dr. Green, Chris, thank you so much for uh, coming on. I'm like, like we were just kind of talking before recording here, really, really, really excited. Um, you preached a sermon, which I'll actually link in the show notes for other people to listen to, uh, 2017, 18, something like that. I, I listened to it in 2018. Um, no, I listened to it in 2019 uh, called God is Not in Control. And um, I, I want to... So we're talking in this series about things that we should stop saying in church. And one of the common ones, I don't know if it's the most common, but one of the common ones is whenever trouble comes, whenever somebody's going through something difficult, they say, well, don't worry, God is in control as this sort of comforting word. Um, I'm not sure it's comforting. I actually don't think it is as someone who's gone through some trouble and someone who's seen some trouble. Um, I, it, it's actually, I think the opposite, but let, let's just start here. What are the problems that you see just in a kind of big picture sense with the framework of telling people who are going through some type of suffering, Hey, don't worry. God is in control. He's sovereign. He's got this figured out. He has a plan. All of the various ways in which we kind of frame that conversation. What's 
what do you think is the big big issue with that? I think I think my reaction was pastoral before it was theological, personal and, and existential even before it was philosophical. But I I was I was recoiling against the way people were appealing to God's control as a way of comforting people. <laughs> supposedly, right, right. supposedly right, right. comforting. I mean, in, in truth, I think it was, I think at first I thought this is not comforting. Later I came to realize, well, it doesn't matter if it's comforting or not because it's false. So I, I, I think that, you know, at least as I remember it, Again, the pastoral recoil was first. Like, how dare you say this to people who are suffering? This right. isn't comforting. And then it, it it dawned on me that the problem really, or at least the heart of the problem, is the idea of God controlling anything. It's the metaphor of control that's problematic. So I, I will affirm that God is sovereign. I just don't think sovereignty has anything to do with what the metaphor of control suggests to us. Like, so when we say control, we're talking about enforcement of will, imposing on something your own will. And I think that is a radical misunderstanding of how God relates to creation. And like I said, now I would say, even if you find it comforting to think that God is in control, you shouldn't, because control is is a perverse way of of thinking about sovereignty. It's it's, I mean, all analogies break down, of course, and all theological language fails at some point, but that fails utterly. It it fails dramatically. The I mean, you could use it, of course, and use it rightly or re- use it well, but you would have to do so much work to undo what people are going to assume when you refer to control. Right, which the whole point of the the slogan is to not have to nuance any of that, right? Like the, right. the point is, is that I can just give you this little pill of a saying to hopefully make all of your all of your pain go away. Yeah. What? Where do you, where, where did this idea come from? Do you know, like, is there a place in church history? Um, that the it, idea of in, control? Yeah, yeah, the idea of control. Well, I, I think in some ways, you know, it's, it's much older. It's not, I don't, I don't think it's a, a Christian idea. I don't think it originates with Christians. I think the idea is much older than that. And I, I think that, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a, scholar of his of religion historically but i would assume and based on the reading i I have done i can say you find that kind of language or at least something similar to it you know in the ancient world in in hebrew scripture you know in hindu um, religious literature it's not it's not a, a peculiarly christian idea but of course, it is. It's always there in one form or another 
in Christian teaching. But I think it's particularly problematic in contemporary American evangelicalism. I, I think it's it's always a problem, and I, and I would reject it. Well, I, in any form I've encountered it, I, I would reject it. But I think it's especially problematic in in the form, in the way that it's used in American evangelicalism. And and there I'm, I'm talking broadly. I'm including Pentecostals and Charismatics, uh, free church, non-denominational folks in that evangelical category, which we, you know, we can quibble about the right way to, to label, um, Christian right to define all but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but using evangelical as a kind of catch all term, I, I think this God is in control language is, is especially problematic. In, in, in what, ways. what way specifically are you thinking? Well, I think, like what's uniquely problematic in the American context or the way that Americans kind of wield that saying? Well, wield is exactly the right way to put it, Max. It, it is weaponized. Sure. And it is, it's a part of a technology, right? So I, as, and, and I'm, for the sake of conversation, I'm going to oversimplify some things that we can unpack either now or later. But I think in general, American evangelicalism, you know, referring to Methodists, holiness folk, you know, again, using that term really broadly. I think evangelicalism is, is a disastrous mistake on lots, on lots of fronts. And the primary reason is its drive for simplicity and efficiency and painlessness. So that what motivates evangelical spirituality, at least many of them, many forms of of it, is this kind of, it's colonialist and it's uh, capitalist. Sure, yeah. It's pressing for greater and greater efficiency and therefore um, tighter and tighter simplicity. And in the process, it just obliterates the, the kind of ecosystem of Christian belief and practice. It, it just utter, utterly destroys the, the ecological balance of Christian convictions right. and sensibilities. And it reduces everything to, you know, one way that I put it recently is, you know, it, it strips everything down to the bone and then breaks the bones and boils them <laughs> to get the broth and then strains the broth, right? It's that kind of stripping away. And then forces to get you to drink it. <laughs> and then forces you to drink one. It's like, was it, was it, it, Mo- is it like Moses? Was that Moses who, who ground, right? The tablets down yeah. to a powder and then made them drink. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. So ex- exactly, right? So it's, it's imagine being sustained, not on the, not on the meat, of an animal or even the bones and marrow or even the broth, but on what's left when you strain all that away, like that, that to me is, there's just not much to evangelicalism. And so because of that, every metaphor gets reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced into some kind of technology, some kind of tool to do a particular kind of work. 
And I think the particular kind of work that God is in control does is it controls people. And specifically, it controls mm. their emotional response to suffering. Wow. Yeah. And at that point, I think we're dealing not only with a catastrophe, we're dealing with oppression. We're dealing with a, a profound corruption of Christian ministry. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to overstate it too strongly, but I don't know that I can overstate how strongly I reject that way of conceptualizing and, and envisioning the Christian life and, and Christian beliefs. I mean, do you think some of it is this, at least in, specifically in the American context, because we are the rich and the powerful, that we have this built in, I don't know how to put it, conviction that we don't need to feel pain, that we're, we're on top. And so we're kind of beyond, we feel invincible. That's probably the best way to put it. And therefore, here's a way that we can theologically strip down something that's really difficult. And Almost, hard. yeah. Almost, and, although, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 they're fine. And just so we say here, we don't want to deal with this pain. We don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to have to settle with the unanswered questions. We'd rather just give this answer to hopefully move on from the pain. Do, do, you, do you think my sensibility is right yeah. there? Is that? I think it's really close. I mean, I think I would say it a little bit differently in that I don't think we feel invincible. I think we think we should feel invincible. And we want to orchestrate that feeling. We want to find a way to re reawaken that sense of superiority over nature, over sure. human experience. So yes, I, I think that, and that that's what I mean when I say, I think it's particularly problematic in our setting, right? So I think the control metaphor, no matter where, I don't want to say, in all the forms I've encountered it, I, I think it's problematic. I'm just, I'm just, um, I think it's, it's a more dangerous disease in, in our context. Yeah. And it seems like how we interpret our experience, you kind of just touched on this, but how we interpret our experience, we, you said we, we think we ought to feel invincible. Like we, yes. we have this idea in our head that we think that no evil should befall us. And I'm, purposely using that language because I think we, it's how we have read the scriptures Absolutely. in this simplistic way. And you, in that sermon that I mentioned earlier, you use Psalm 91 as kind right. of the, the proof of this. And I think it is yeah. the great proof of this is we have this text that says, Hey, if you follow God, nothing bad will happen to you. That's right. And then later on in, in, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, it's the devil who's actually quoting that back exactly. to Jesus. Exactly. But we we will proof text that, you know, to the moon and back as a way of saying, hey, listen, here it is. It's in the book. Without wanting to do the, I think, also painful and hard work of wrestling with what the scriptures actually say, we'd rather just take this one that is the easiest and we build this whole doctrine around it that makes us feel like we should be invincible. Am I, 
I do. Yeah, I do think it's right. And I think we're we're drawn to these texts and to particular readings of these texts for a reason. And it's rarely anything other than our basest instincts that are that are driving us to those texts or to and to those readings of those texts, right? Sure. So of course I, I affirm the promises of Psalm ninety one. But I think they have to be they have to be heard in in the way that they were meant to be heard, mm-hmm. not in the way that we have come to hear them, which which are and again just to underscore the point you're making. I mean, I think we read we we, we essentially raid Psalm ninety one and make its promises what we want them to be, which is sure. a, the promise of prosperity and security and painlessness. And success, American yeah. dream. I mean, right, exactly. I, I think in some sense we're reading our own our own story into it that we've, and this gets Absolutely. into a way bigger issue. We've mythologized um, the American story and put the divine stamp of approval on it, and then we just take that and we just we just forcefully put that back onto the text and proof text, right? And we just are stuck in this endless loop of shallow hermeneutics to reinforce what we, what we really, really want. And in, in that sense, I, you said it earlier, it's, we're just using God as a means to an end, right? We're just, and in, and I, this is why I, in the year, year and a half that's gone by since I first listened to that message, why I, I come to agree with you, what worst thing could you say to somebody who's going through some type of trauma than basically a shallow, selfish, and again, I'm not trying to be too mean here, but I I, I, I don't know how you get around that that's what it, what it really is. It's this a self-serving way to read the scriptures that turns God into the genie in the lamp that gives me what I want without having to do any, any work for it and proof texting, then we just throw that at people. Right. Well, a, a couple of, of notes on what you just said. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is it's it's not just that we're saying something untrue to someone and unloving to someone, but at the same time and for the same reasons, we're saying something untrue and unloving about God so that what we're doing is either twisting or perverting like diseasing their understanding of god not just in this moment but but in every moment of their life right and we're doing that in ways that hurt them whether they realize it or not right so as i said before i mean i think there are plenty of people who find a lot of comfort in the idea that god is in control but well sure you just go read the old like puritan missionaries and whatever and Absolutely. Their third wife and sixth kid dies, and every appeal is to this must be the will of God because he's sovereign and he must have some reason, and I find comfort in that. Well, right, and, and I, here's here's a good point to put in some nuance because I, I think that's right, and I, I was talking with a friend the other day about, about Puritan spirituality, and, I, and I'm not an expert in Puritan spirituality, but I've encountered enough of it. I, I have... I think I've recognized a few things about it. One is we have to remember that it is a style, a devotional style. Um, 
And there are complexities and nuances in that that I think are utterly lost on evangelicals in our in our setting, right? So I agree with you. I think the Puritans are speaking in these grandiose ways about the control of God in, in the way that Calvin himself does, right? And in sure. the way that Augustine long before Calvin does. But I still think there's an ecosystem to Puritan spirituality that has some balance in it, right? And what you're hearing in their language of control, you know, it, that's the predatory language within the ecosystem. It, and it, it has a certain function. Yeah, yeah. I, I disagree with it. Yeah. I disagree yeah, yeah. with it. But I understand that it, it has a certain function in the ecosystem. What I'm saying about kind of contemporary American evangelicalism is that there's no longer an ecosystem, right? Like we've, we've erased everything, obliterated everything. We're living in, in this kind of post-apocalyptic space, spiritually and theologically speaking. Yeah. And where where everything is decimated, right? And because of that, now control the, the tool appeals to God's control. It's just a blunt weapon at this point, right? Like it's not it's no longer yeah, I, I don't know, I'm I'm probably over explaining this, but I, I do think there's a nuance there to make, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um to to underscore our impoverishment, right? Our, our, how destitute we actually are for wisdom and insight and the, the truthfulness that comes with owning the complexity of life together in life with God and the complexity of scripture. The other thing I was going to say about what you said is that when you and I were talking then, we were talking a lot about what we do, right? That we say these things because we want these things. But in truth, of course, that's not how we experience it, right? So no no one, or virtually no one, thinks to themselves, you know, I want to seal the American dream with divine approval. No one right. no one recognizes that's that that that's what they're doing. Right. Right. I do think there are all kinds of ways in which we to put it a little too bluntly, we've been far more American than we are Christian. But I don't think that that is intentional, right? I think it's purposeful, right? So for me, there's this this kind of fine but important distinction between being intentional about something and being purposeful about it, right? So intentional means I'm consciously deciding to do something. Purposefully means I'm doing it and I want to be doing it, but I have developed enough uh, complexity in the way that I engage myself that I'm able to keep myself from knowing what I'm doing while I'm doing it. Right. There's this line. I was just reading James Baldwin yesterday and he was talking about this moment when he was a a kid, which the one white woman at his church, he's at a black church, black Pentecostal church in Harlem and the church splits and he decides to go with his friends who are in the split. And one of the women who's staying in the church, the only white woman in the congregation, she she grabs his arm and is screaming in his face about his future damnation because of this this betrayal. And and, and Baldwin says she knew she was hurting me, but I don't know if she knew she knew she was hurting mm. me. But she knew she was hurting me, but I don't know if she knew she knew. 
she was hurting me, right? And that's what I'm talking about, right? I don't think we know that we know what we're doing. We know we know what we're doing. We know we're doing. We right. know that we know what we're doing. Right. And we are, and and we here, I'm, 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 re- I'm referring to our parents and grandparents and great grandparents, not just you and me, but collectively, the people who have shaped what we know of as American evangelicalism. We have done this purposefully. Yeah. But I think tragically, virtually none of it has been intentional. Right? We, we, we've been deceived, self-deceived all along the way. Yeah. You, you said something earlier that I, I think is gets to the crux of the matter. And then I actually want to get back to some more of the hermeneutical question. Yeah. But you said at the core of this is it does work. We're not only using this as a weapon against people and really ourselves, but we're, this isn't exactly how you put it, but we're, we're, we're telling them in, when we say that we are telling other people what God is actually like, that, that he's the, he's the cop. This is probably a bad analogy to use this time, but he's the, he's the person who could have done something and didn't because he had some greater purpose and that if he wanted to do something, he is in control in a, in a way that he could have, that he could have just stepped in and, and you, and you know, you, you hear people will even explicitly say that. Like, hey, listen, if God wanted this person to be made well, well then he would have healed them. And if he wanted this not to happen, well then he, he would have stopped it. And we, we end up with this picture of God that is, He's the mechanic behind the scenes. He's well. He's he's Oz behind the curtain, pulling all of the pulling all of the levers. Uh, you yeah. talk talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you 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 know, the goal of simplifying is to try to get clear about your commitments, right? So you you want to simplify to make sure you're saying what you mean and you mean what you say. But bad simplicity, the, the kind of simplicity that American evangelicalism has is in some sense the result of and in some sense the cause of bad simplicity just leaves you unaware of your own incoherent commitments the incoherence of your commitments and so and this is this is nowhere is it truer than in our beliefs about God and God's relation to evil we we believe absolutely contradictory things and say them in the same breath without knowing we've done that, right right so we are we're saying in, in saying something like god allowed this evil for a later greater good right right we want to be saying that god is good and is trustworthy but there's another way in which in saying that, we also are saying sometimes the only way good can be done is to do evil. Yeah. Right. Well, for so sure, we're yeah. and, and those things are ultimately in incompatible. Either you believe that God is good and is against evil, or you believe that evil isn't really evil sometimes, because sometimes it's necessary. And if it's necessary, then it's good. Right. And and all you in, in some of my classes that I would teach, uh, one of the rules that I had was you're not allowed to use the word mystery. Right. 
you can appeal because eventually if you just, you really usually only have to ask like one or two questions. The person will eventually just have to pull out the mystery card and say, well, listen, I don't know why God needs to use this evil. It's a mystery, but I trust him. Well, And that's the thing you'll realize, uh, you know, you, you begin to realize as you read more and more in, in the Christian tradition and, and beyond the Christian. I mean, this is true, I think, in Jewish tradition as well. But it's actually the people who have oversimplified the truth who most need appeals to mystery right, because they've right. created a bad simplicity that the only way they can hold it together as, as, as coherent is by piecing it together with, with glue, the glue of mystery, right? Whereas, honestly, the more, you know, so you read someone like Aquinas, right, who's just building cathedrals of complex theology, and he's not appealing to mystery to, to hold it all together. Right. No, he's not that, not that he systematic. doesn't have a theology of mystery, but his, right. it, it, there is a, there's a way in which we know what he means when he says mystery. And whereas in, in American evangelicalism, mystery is just a, a, a cipher for, trust me, it makes sense, even though I have no way of explaining it. To you. Right, right. Don't ask too many questions. That's just cheating. And it's not just intellectually dishonest. It's morally dishonest. Wow. Yeah. It, it's not, it is intellectually dishonest, but it, but it is also a betrayal of, of prayer, a betrayal of compassion. It's, it's a betrayal of everything that truly matters. So it's, it's not just a, you know, a philosophical mistake. It, it, it's a, it's to introduce a contradiction in, into our hearts that will unmake us. And I think we, we have to recognize, and, and this is why I think just, quickly to come back to your point. I mean, I think you're wise to, to kind of take that tool away from your students, at least in the short run. You know, yeah. they can get it back later. They can earn it back. Sure, sure. But they they have to earn it back. I, I do something similar, not only with the language of mystery, but also with the language of balance. I mean, another thing that happens in, yeah. <laughs> in communities that, that, that generate bad simplicity is that they, they generate these utterly contradictory convictions and then call for balance as a way of reconciling. Right? right, right. Which, you know, again, comes to this point of, I think what most people actually believe, if you press them and press them and press them until they have to say what they think, you know, not to violate anyone, but I'm saying as a teacher, as, as someone who's helping them come to understand themselves, I think that, or, or allowing that to be done to us, it, we start to realize that we do believe at some deep level that evil isn't really evil always. Sometimes it's necessary and therefore good. And so when we say God allowed this for a greater good, we're, we're affirming these contradictory, these absolutely contradictory affirmations. On the one right. hand, God is good, absolutely good, and you can trust him completely. And evil isn't necessarily evil. So God isn't absolutely good. Right. And, and trust is yeah. beside the point. Right. And that so it, and that is the issue, right? Is we make God not good. I, I just don't know 
there is to me there is no other way around if god i mean it, it's it's the classic phrasing of the problem of evil if god is good and all powerful the, why do these things happen and that even that question is given in the framework of control that he can control all things right and that's why i don't Absolutely. even really like that like that question anymore is it, it just assumes that god works in these binaries so what what's a better way what's a better way of talking about it? you made a distinction earlier about sovereignty which is a word we find all over in scripture sure and control but i think in most churchgoers minds those are the same thing that they're synonym that when we say god is sovereign what we mean is he's the one controlling all the things that happen working them out and that we kind of subscribe to almost this really rough form of determinism that he's determined yeah. everything and he's working it out we're, we're just kind of along for the ride and like you said it'll make sense later what what's a better talk to talk to us about the difference between those two things and what and what may be a better way forward? Well, I, I think there are lots of better ways forward, most of which are already at hand. I mean, they're, they're close to us, but they won't work until we rebuild the ecosystem, you know, like intellectual, moral ecosystem in, in which, you know, each of these different metaphors and conception, conceptual, um, frameworks has has its place right so i so for instance i i think that what often happens to people who come up against the realization that okay this control language is bad because of how devastated our our climate is we then think the only other option is whatever we already think of as the opposite of control Right, sure. permission and allowance, right? So you get some some forms of, you know, theologically, you get some forms of, of open theism in which you get just the the inverse of the God is in control language. The you know the the the, the chapter in the book that you're referencing is entitled God is not in control. But I I hope the chapter makes clear I'm not simply affirming the negation of sure. our simplicities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what I'm wanting to say is, no, we're wrong about control. But we we could also go on to say God is not in control, not because God isn't sovereign, but precisely because he is. Right? Sure. And I hope, again, I hope that's clear in, in the chapter. It's certainly what I mean to say, that Control is ultimately too narrow a concept to grasp any enough of what sovereignty truly means, right? So I, I think sovereignty, however, only works if at the conceptual level, you're able to think about God's relationship to us as fundamentally different from our relation to one another or our relation to the natural world, right? So that God can relate to me and does relate to me as only God can, and that I can't have the relation with you or with anyone or anything 
that God has with me. That's the creator creature distinction, theologically speaking. Right. right. Sure. That God is the source of my life. God is the the origin and the 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 fulfillment of my life and, and the guide that that brings me from origin to to that fullness and that fulfillment. And that is God's work to do. No one else can do that. No one else can be God to me. And it's an, it's astonishing how muddled we are about that because we we tend to think about our relationship to God as on a continuum with our relationship to each other just sure at the at the ultimate end of that continuum right so he's that, the dad like your dad but he's the best dad that you can capital imagine capital D dad of dad right 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 my dad exactly. can beat your dad up type of right. type of thing. Exactly. And and it's absolutely crucial. And, and it's hard work and, and impossible work within a a devastated devastated ecosystem. But if you can kind of recover an intellectual and moral ecosystem, you can then begin to see that what Christians affirm, what scripture affirms, is that God is to us something only God can be to us and that there's no competition between God being God and me being me. Here, let me give you some examples because I know this can seem um, no, bizarrely great. theoretical, but you know, there's, there's a Psalm, I, I think it's Psalm 127, but I may be wrong about that. That, that says, unless the Lord build the, builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. That's a Pentecostal favorite. It is a Pentecostal favorite, but I don't think we grasp what's being affirmed about God's work in relation to our work. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think for most people, God's work and our work are zero are, are in a zero sum relationship. Right. So if if something is going to happen, it's going to be either entirely God's action. That's what we call a miracle. Or entirely my action. That's what we call natural life. So like in Pentecostal right. charismatic circles in particular, there's a really strong emphasis on the difference between the supernatural and the natural. Natural, right. Yeah. right? And what they mean by that, in, in many cases, is the supernatural refers to God's acting, God being God, God's will being done, fully done. And the natural refers to us being ourselves, Right. Our will being done rather than God's. Right. And then you throw the devil in there for yeah, the third. Exactly. Right. And, and that's the, I mean, that's the framework that I grew up in is you can look at basically anything that happens in the world yep. and you can say either God is doing that again, miracle humans are doing that yep. or the Satan natural. is doing that. Right. Yep. And exactly. But the I think attack, right? it was shortly after I was, I'd read your book. I was reading through the gospels and I got through was, you know, through the end and it dawned on me in the crucifixion that the crucifixion itself destroys those boxes Absolutely. because who do you say is acting? Well, all three are, is the devil. I mean, we're told that, that, that if the devil had known, you know, what would happen, he wouldn't have done it. So he's clearly at work in the midst of that. You get to the preaching and acts and, and Peter, especially is super clear. Like you killed the Lord of glory. So humans are at act, but ultimately we say that God is acting. 
So that event itself, I think, should hopefully, if we, I think, if we read it carefully and reflectively, push those through the, that easy three bucket system aside and say, well, it's just not that simple. But that is, I think, how most of us think about it. And so That's we just right. walk around the world saying, God, devil, devil, and it's a lot of devil. Ironically, it's a lot of devil and a lot of human. And a little bit of God. That's right. And that's little, right. And, a little, and that, to me, that's the ironic thing about this is it you just start to realize, well, in practice, we actually don't believe that God does very much. That's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. And I, one of the things I've become convinced of is in a community, the things we say the most often reveal that what we're most convinced of is its opposite. Right. So in, in Pentecostal charismatic circles, we, not, we, we talk about nothing so much as we talk about the action of God. But right. once you see it, you realize that's because we think it's actually so hard to get God to act and so rare right. for God to act. Right. Because we are we've essentially restricted God to the things we can't explain any other way. Right. So for most people in our circles, when they say God, what they mean is whatever power it is that's making happen, happen things I can't explain otherwise. Right. Right. And that leads us to either admitting that God doesn't do very much, or it leads us to the absurdity of attributing everything to God by making our, by will, willing ourselves to be more and more ignorant. Right. So that because ultimately in that scheme, the less I know, the more room there is for God to act. Right. So the, the <laughs> less I understand. True. The, ignorance the, is bliss. Right. Yeah. Ignorance. Yeah. Ignorance is divine. Because yeah. well, it leaves room for the divine. Because it's you know if I don't know something, then that just opens up space for for God to be God, and that is not only silly, it's dehumanizing. It, it, it's anti-human and therefore anti-Christ. Right? It quenches the spirit precisely yeah. because it defeats and stymies our our growth as human beings right you you, you can't um we're, we're not meant for that right we're in in the language of proverbs we're meant for knowledge and understanding and wisdom not ignorance certainly not right. willed ignorance right? sure there there are things of course that are you know the psalmist will say right you know i i i, I thought of things that are too lofty for me but the whole point is as a human being, I should be striving for knowledge and wisdom and understanding and know when to when I've reached my limit. What we've done is essentially turned that inside out, purposely but not intentionally, so that we we're seeking the lack of knowledge and the lack right. of understanding right. and calling that wisdom because we've we've conceived the world in a way in which either God is acting or the devil is or I am. And that's a, a radical misapprehension of who God is in relation to us. Right. And it, you, you're right to point to the death of Jesus. But you can then scan out from there to the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the creation of all things, the, the consummation of all things. And, and start to realize that everything that matters to us, right? So if you go to the creed, what we confess about God as creator and what God has 
accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation. And what we hope for in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment at the end of all things. All of that requires it, requires a, a reconceiving of how God acts in relation to us and in relation to evil. And we, because we can't conceive that or won't, then we undermine the most basic con- commitments of the faith, right? So huh. that we we think in the short run we have a way of making sense of our lives, but it's it's a very superficial. It has it has very right. little explanatory power. It's a, it's a very superficial um, grasp of things, and the deeper the issue, the more at a loss we are. Yeah, and and I think. I mean, we've probably all had examples in our life where those ca- it just, I mean, should anyway, come to stark reality that those that way of talking about it doesn't work. So I'm thinking of somebody has an accident, one person dies. I mean, you can think about any, any natural disaster that one person dies and one person doesn't. Yeah. And we have this inclination then well i mean because what are we to to say then is we can't i don't think faithfully say that god willed one to die and willed the other to live and that's why one died and one lived and we just don't know why he wanted one dead and one living right um or that god saved one and allowed the other to die maybe he didn't will him to die but he he at least he at least and i think all of us, I think, would quickly, at least should, I think, quickly recognize well, that doesn't make any sense. No. Um, but that's... Well, I, part of what I, I worries me is that I, I think there are multiple dangers on multiple fronts, right? So I think there, there, there's the danger of that not making sense, but people not finding an alternative. There's the danger of that making sense and people not seeking an alternative, right? So I I think we can never underestimate how easily satisfied people are, we are, you and I are, with explanations, right? So one of the things I I remind my students of all the time is that when you're thinking about something and you're trying to think about it differently, everything in you, because of the way you've been conditioned, everything in you is going to press you to accept the first explanation that seems to satisfy you so if if we're grappling with we're grappling with sovereignty and you've become dissatisfied with what you've been told because of our the pressures that are on us for simplicity and painlessness and efficiency then the next best thing we can do is quickly find an alternative explanation and part of what i think truly one of the marks i think of of truly being led by the spirit into all truth is we realize that we we can't settle for whatever seems to be satisfying for us right that the spirit you know in, in pentecostal preaching we often talk about you know the spirit is like the mother bird that that is kind of stirring us out of the nest right out of our quote unquote comfort zone but again, 
like I said before, we talk about that so much because in fact, what we believe is that we need quickly to get back into our comfort zone. Right. right? Yeah. And what I've come to be convinced of by reading the church fathers, by reading medieval theologians, by reading the mystics, by reading early Pentecostals, by reading black Pentecostals and, you know, missionaries who have lived their lives outside of this bubble. Yeah. Yeah. You start to realize what they're telling us is that there is no way to truth that isn't painful. And, and there is God's ways are not efficient, right? That, that God does not work in straight, quick lines, right? That, that God, God is, uh, is liable to take you the long way around. Right. And, Part of letting the spirit lead you is leading you not from this is difficult. Oh, I quickly solved it because the spirit led me to this is difficult. And then I went from that difficulty through a wilderness of difficulties for a generation. Right. For a long time. Not, not just because of, I mean, of course, in that narrative, it, it's, it's largely because of unbelief or disobedience. But I, I don't think that that's always the case. I don't think that theologically, I would say this. I don't think difficulty is a result of the fall. Difficulty isn't evil. I think suffering is a result of the fall. I think, and certainly meaningless suffering, cruel suffering is a result of the fall. But I think difficulty is is altogether good or or, or, or can be. When yeah. the difficulty is basic to the enlargening of our humanity, right? So that there, it should be difficult to to paint the painting or write the song. It should be difficult to dance the dance. It should be difficult to to woo your lover. It should these things should be difficult, and they're not difficult because of sin, right? In fact, I think often the, the opposite is the case, right? What sin does is try to offer us easy paths past difficulties, which is one way. I mean, that's the temptation. The, that's what I was about to say. That, yeah, yeah okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Talk, yeah. talk no. about that for a minute, because I, I think that's exactly right. No, right. That's what I was going to say. I think this is, you, you say, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think one of the premises of another book that you have, Sanctifying Interpretation, is kind of exactly this point, is that sometimes even the text is difficult not because god is trying to be mean and hide things but actually it's the difficulty of mining it out that produces the kind of people that can then handle and become what we get on the other side right. and I, I think that's true of life in general right that we have to be made into a kind of a kind of person and specifically a, a cruciform person, a cross-shaped person that is willing to lay down our life for other people in the name of the God who is love, not the God who is the master chess player moving all of the, the pieces on the board around for some mysterious way. But he's, he's always lovingly at work, and that is sometimes difficult for, for us because his ways are not our ways and right. his thoughts are not our, I mean, to go to another kind of classic Pentecostal example, right? Yeah. 
Well, but see, that that's a I remember reading William Golding years ago, you know, the Lord of the Flies author. He wrote a little essay, a kind of autobiographical essay. And in it, he, he just makes this passing comment about how it makes all the, you know, Pilate's question, what is truth? He says, it makes all the difference when in the conversation you ask that question. He says, if you ask it at the beginning of a conversation as a way of opening yourself up to an answer, that's one thing. If you ask it in order to end a conversation, that's something else altogether, right? So I think that a lot of what we're doing, back to using language as a tool to, to manage and control others, I think a lot of what we do in terms of what we claim, a lot of what we do in the claims we make about scripture is meant to do that. It's meant to stop discernment. It's meant to stop conversation. And back to my point here about what we talk about the most reveals not what we believe, but that we believe the opposite of that. So in our communities, you know, we talk endlessly about the action of God and we talk endlessly about the authority of Scripture. But as I, I, I argue in, in sanctifying interpretation, in, in the revised edition anyway, I think that that's almost entirely about authority, our authority, and almost nothing at all to do with Scripture. Sure. We talk a lot about Scripture precisely because we are trying to keep from having to grapple with it. We don't want to read the texts, and so we talk about the texts in ways that keep us from having to read them. So that we can keep authority over our own experience. And, and absolutely. And again, I don't think that's intentional. I don't think that is right. very often. I don't think that is the case of someone. You know, I, I don't think there are a lot of monsters among us in the sense that they are orchestrating their control over us, masterminding our submission. I think it's much more sinister than that. That we, whether we're leaders or followers, or, or of course, most of us are, are both in various ways, we, we are doing that, you know, asserting control purposefully without knowing that we're doing it, right? We're, well, we know, but we don't know that we know, as I, as, as <laughs> I said Baldwin. earlier. Yeah. So it's, it's also, we, we've, one of the things we've done, right, is we've, we've, grossly underestimated how good the devil is at being the devil right like like we we uh which is again bizarre because we do talk a lot about the devil but talk about the devil but we talk about the devil in ways that suggests we actually are pretty good at knowing when he's acting and what he's up to and I, i think we're wrong about that about that too. And I don't mean here, just, just to clarify, like for me, I mean, I, when I say the devil, I'm, I'm just referring to, I mean, that obviously that's a, it's a serious, there's, there's a lot of conversation to be had about what, what we mean here by, you know, who is the devil? What is this a fallen angel? Is this a, is this a being, but leave all of that aside right now. What I, what I'm, what I really want to name is that I think evil is at work in the world in ways that seeks to destroy us. And we have grossly underestimated how good it is at doing that, how well it undoes what God wants to do in us. Right. So the part of what, uh, you know, part of the irony of being a Pentecostal 
is that I think what we talked about the most, we understood the least. And we need to return to what we've talked about the most and try to truly understand it. What, what were we covering up, keeping ourselves from seeing by talking about these things the way that we did? And let the Spirit lead us into truth about those things, yeah, yeah. however difficult and disruptive that, that leading proves to be. Yeah. Uh, let's make this kind of final shift here. We can kind of start to approach the landing. So in the, in the same way, I think that we underestimate how easily, I, I think we're, we think we're way better at recognizing the work of the devil in our lives and in the world. I think the inverse is also true that we also greatly overestimate our ability to recognize the ways in which God is at work in Absolutely. the world. And Absolutely. to me, it, it seems like this whole idea of control, part of it at least is, it allows us to easily identify what God is doing. And, and we, so we've talked a lot about what, how we don't want to talk about that. How do you, let's look at it on the positive. How should we talk about it? How should we describe the action of God in the world as it relates to human experience? We'll kind of move that direction and, and start to land the plane a little bit. So I'm going to say these things, and, and I know that, you know, many of, for many of your hearers, I, I'm assuming many of your listeners, they're, it's going to probably seem absurd. But again, this is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one, right? Whether they follow up with you or me or, or someone else. But I, I, I would say a few things and feel free to, you know, probe any of them for more. Yeah. I, I, the first thing I would say is that God doesn't have potential. And he doesn't do partial works, right? So God is always fully himself and he is always acting. His, his action is, is full. Now, of course, there are ways in which that fullness does and doesn't come into the world in fullness. But that's a, that's a second conversation. So what I, want to, what I want to insist on first is that we don't say God sometimes acts and sometimes doesn't, and sometimes acts with all of his might and sometimes doesn't, that he could have done more and didn't, or could have acted and chose not to. What we need to say is that God's own life is his action, and his action is always for us. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is that his action is always only good and for the good of all. So he, he is always only doing good, and it's always good for everyone, not just good right. for me or you, but what he does is good for Israel. It's also good for Pharaoh. What he does that's good for Pharaoh is also good for Israel, and what is good for Jacob is good for Esau. This is, this is, the, this is what I think Paul is doing in Romans 9 to 11, which I think in some ways is the, the heart of the New Testament, um, at least the heart of the, the Pauline. Let me put it that way. It's not the heart of the New Testament, but the heart of, of Paul's understanding of the gospel is this. God is always acting. God is always acting for the good. God is always acting for the good of all. Even when in our experience, that looks like God being for some and against others. God being with Jacob and against Esau, with Israel and against Pharaoh. 
when in truth what's happening is because of our freedom and the corruption of our freedom through the work of evil and because of the ways in which God's work is fitted to his humility and because of the ways that God has made time and space and because of the ways that evil has affected time and space and our experience of it. What we see and hear is always only part, right? Through a glass darkly. It, it's always only part. We, we prophesy in part, Paul says. We, we, we know in part. Not because what is known is partial, right? God, God isn't broken. Or because up. what God did was partial. It, it, exactly. That's exactly yeah. my point, right? God right. is always acting. God is always acting fully. God is always acting fully for the good and the good only. And God is always acting fully for the good and good only for everyone. And that's what we will know when we know in full. Right? Sure. And it's, because of that, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it, it goes back to the crucifixion. And I'm thinking of like the, the road to Emmaus story is in the moment, the crucifixion seems like the most out of control moment in Israel's history is the Messiah is dying. And it's only after the resurrection that they then can look back and realize that in the moment that seemed like God was completely out of control, so to speak, he was actually doing the deepest work that he possibly could, that he was overcoming death by death. And, and so the, the, knowing comes, the knowing comes after. But in the moment, they didn't, nobody understood that to be happening in the moment. Right. And, and I, I mean, this, this, we're in deep waters now, but a few things I think have to be said here. One is what's changing is not God, but what we're doing to God, what we're doing with God. And it's that that brings about the change in the world, right? That, that in creating, God is not changed. In the incarnation, God is not changed. In the cross, God is not changed. What's happening in the resurrection is the revelation of who God is and has always been. But what's happening in the cross is about a change in us, a change we're trying to impose upon God, and in the process being changed by God. Right. So this is this is um, again, I know, far from simple for us, but it's it's absolutely crucial that we don't make God a better God than He would have been without us. Right? <laughs> we, in our prayer, in our obedience, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to become all that He can be, right? God is not altered by us in any way and does not need us in any way. This is, this is fundamental to grasping what it means to believe the good news. And again, that creates all kinds of problems for us because of the, the ways in which we've, as, as I've, kept, I've said you know, probably too much in this interview, but 
because we've destroyed the kind of philosophical ecosystem, the, the intellectual and moral framework, we, we don't know how to think about the deepest convictions we have about who God is and who we are in relation to God. So, you know, I, I, if, you, if you imagine a kind of inverted pyramid, I think the evangelical Christianity, we've, most of us, have been shaped by, you know, it, it is incredibly superficial. It's broad. But, but very thin, very, very shallow. And the deeper you go, theologically, pastorally, spiritually, the further you get from anything we understand, the, the more at a loss we are. So we are, we are most at a loss in relation to those things that matter most, which is why it's so disastrous when that breaks through in you. I mean, what you described earlier, I can't remember now if it was while we were recording or before we started recording, but about being there. Yeah. Before in the, in the refugee camps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In the refugee camps, like what happened was that experience brought you to kind of, you know, what, what Psalms talks about as, you know, the depths of your heart. Sure. the foundations of things in you and you realize, okay, the Christianity I was given, it's not, it can't reach here. No, it doesn't work here. It does not work here. And, no. and that's what I think that's, that's why it's such an unfaithful, such a problematic way of confessing and practicing the faith because it doesn't actually touch us at, at, at the depths at that deep level. And it can't, yeah. it can't, so you could could you summarize it then this way of it's not that God is not in control as if there's chaos and he's not in control it's that his action in the world is not like control altogether and that his work as the sovereign creator is unlike anything else in the world and it's this is what you insisted on earlier and I think it's right that he's always at work that that work is always for the good of his creation. It's always bringing about his glory and it's always at work for all people at the same time. It's just that we don't recognize what he's doing all the time. So in a sense, and I, I think I've heard, I think I've heard it's you that I've heard say this before that there's in any moment, there is what God is doing and there's what we are experiencing. And that those two things are not always the That's exact right. same thing that we we think one thing. So I was thinking about earlier, actually yesterday, about the maybe we can end here about the Lazarus story, because I this was to this was the story for me growing up that was always, hey, look, Jesus has has told his friend is sick. He's he's told that he's you know going to die or whatever, and he doesn't go. And he doesn't go and he allows Lazarus to die because he knows that he's going to do something. And then, so we just make the easy, easy yep. step of like, and sometimes God does the same to you. Sometimes you will suffer and it's because he knows that he's got something else. But when I was in the, in the refugee camps, this is, I think what began there and what even I'm still just even yesterday coming to better language of is that that that's not what's going on at all that it's not that he's allowing this thing because that's just deception that's that's 
that's doing something with your right. It's doing it's something magic. with your right hand, hi, hiding magic. it from your left, and then it's it's that's it's wicked right. deception, really. It is deception. Yeah. And well, if we I mean, read, it's oh, go ahead. It's tied to magical thinking, right? And and part of part of what our oversimplified spirituality has done is it's it's made us superstitious in all the worst ways. Right. So we, we a lot of us have been taught to think about the ancient world as primitive and, and, and the modern world as enlightened, you know, that we've kind of outgrown magical thinking. We've outgrown superstition. If anything, the opposite is true. Right. Like, like yeah, right. The, the of course, it's more complicated than, than simply saying that. But 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 we are not not superstitious. We're incredibly superstitious. We think magically about these things. And that story is a great example our reading of that story is a great example i'm glad you brought it up and one one thing i would note is first is in the gospel of john the glorification of jesus is his crucifixion right so if you just read the gospel of john the 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 glorification moment is jesus is is raised up on the tree so when he says lazarus is sick for the sake of the glory of god we think that's the resurrection of Lazarus, but right. it's, it, it's the it's the big reveal moment, so that everybody will believe it's the big miracle. But the point of the Gospel of John is that Lazarus is rising from the dead is what's going to instigate the plot to bring Jesus' death. That is the glory of God. Which which it says in the story, they question Absolutely. him as they're going down. Hey, they can say, "Jesus, don't you know that they're trying to kill you?" And then when so are you sure we should go? And I think this is the moment Thomas says, uh, I'll go with you and let's die. Uh, I'll right. die with you, right? Um, and and then afterwards, that's the word gets to the leaders and they they go, we can't, what are we going to do? And it says from that point forward, they they try and, and kill, kill him. And, and Lazarus, right? Which is one of the reasons that there's no... So this this is really a crucial point, right? So when, when Lazarus is resurrected, there's no celebration. Mary and Martha, there's, we don't get a description of the reconciliation of the sisters and the brother. Lazarus doesn't speak. Right? Jesus simply says, loose him and let him go. And then we move right into a description of, of how Jesus' enemies respond and receive what's happened. Right, But nothing about Martha you know, thanking Jesus, nothing about Mary grabbing her brother and kissing him, nothing like that. And the next time we see them, which is the next chapter, Mary is washing Jesus' feet in anticipation, uh, anointing Jesus' feet in anticipation of his burial. Because what she recognized in the resurrection of her brother is what it meant for Jesus. Like she knew immediately this is going to get him killed. Right? So before we even get to the, the, the questions of providence, just narratively, the point of the, the resurrection of Lazarus for the glory of, of God is the ways in which that brings about the crucifixion of Jesus, not the ways in which it brings about making Jesus famous as miracle worker. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's interesting in that story too, and maybe we can, this may be a good place to kind of, kind of end. I, I want to be respectful of your time, but is, when the word first comes to go back to God is always at work for our good, if you just read the story carefully, the report comes to Jesus, and the first word out of his mouth is, this isn't unto death. 
So from the so we 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 have come to think of the story as he hears this news and does nothing about it so that he can become famous when it happens. But in actuality, he hears it and immediately gives the promise this isn't going to end in death, even though later he says Lazarus is dead. He's dead, but this isn't going to end in death. Well, that, right. and I would, I would say more. It's not just promise. It is that. It's also the word that constitutes it. So Jesus' word is the word of creation. When Jesus is the one who says, let it be. When Jesus says, this is not unto death, He's not describing a future he knows. He is inscribing that possibility. He's speaking the creative word. He's speaking the creative word, right? So he is acting, right? And and of course, if we didn't think magically and mythically, you know, Jesus doesn't travel. Like he's the eternally present infinite one. So there's a way in which narratively, of course, you know, Jesus goes from here to there. But we know that, you know, Jesus is at, is at hand for all of us all the time, right? So the, but I, I don't even think we can get to the providential, the, the kind of metaphysical issues until we kind of pay attention to what the narrative is actually. He's actually saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it, it's up to something very different from what we. Yeah. And, and all the way, th- yeah. And all the way through that story, you have him speaking that word then you have him giving these words to his disciples about what this is going to mean. And then you have him listening to Mary and Martha, and then he's weeping next to them. And if you just read the story the whole, the whole way through, to me, it becomes clear he's at work. It's exactly what you said. He is actually at work all of the time. And he's actually at work all of the time for all of these different characters. He's, he's giving each one what they need in that moment. And it comes to the, the climactic scene where the sisters come out and they say, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Couldn't you who, you know, open blind eyes, you surely could have done something here. And, and this is, I think, the tension that we're, we're, we've been kind of getting to is what they were experiencing of Jesus doing and what he was actually doing in speaking the word, listening, groaning, praying. He, he says that he had already prayed he was at work the whole time. They just didn't perceive it. They didn't have eyes, eyes to yes, see it. Yes, that's right. And what they don't get, Mary and Martha, until he's until Lazarus is resurrected, is and it's revealed in what they say. If you had been here, our brother would not have died, right? And the point is, of course, the nearness of Jesus doesn't keep us from death. It it is Jesus' nearness to us as the one who died for us, that for makes us. death possible for us, but right. makes it so that death is not the end. It transforms death. Well, it, yeah. And, and, and in, the in, process, in a sense, yeah, yeah. yeah we, I mean, so the reason I'm quibbling with that is that I think it ultimately destroys death. But before that, it transfigures what death means to us and what dying means sure. for us. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So ultimately, death itself, 1 Corinthians 15, it's the enemy of God that is destroyed. But... But in this, in, 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 experientially, yes, it changes what death means for us and how we experience it, and what, and what dying means and how we experience it. And so, what they're getting wrong is they think that because Jesus is live life, therefore there would be no death. And what Jesus yes. is showing is no, that's not who I am. Who I am to you is not the one who keeps you from dying. I'm the one who keeps dying from being the last. Thing the that last happens word, to you, right? Right. The, the last right. word that's spoken over you. 
So in, in fact, the nearness of Jesus enables us to die. It's not, it's not the other way, not the other way around. So that's another way in which we, we can misapprehend that, that text, right? That it's the, but, you know, we're far, far afield, I guess. I, I, I want to say one more thing and then, then, you know, you cut me off and we'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll end with this. So good. insane. And I just, I, I want to stress this point because I, I think I raised it earlier and didn't make this clear. So not only does God always act and always act fully and always only for good and for the good of all, but in the process, God never uses evil for good. God never instrumentalizes evil. He doesn't, for he doesn't later, need it. He doesn't need evil at all, ever, for any purpose. Right? He creates from nothing, and he creates with us, but he does not need evil to bring about his good. And therefore, I think it's, instead of saying, God made good from evil, which suggests to people that the evil was somehow necessary to the good God was making, or that the later good retroactively redeems the, the former evil. What yeah, we should the end say justifies that, the means, yeah. Right. What we should say instead is God works against evil, both before, during, and after it. So before evil happens, God is at work against it. While evil is happening, God is at work against it. And afterwards, God is at work against it. Always fully. Right? And, and because of the nature of things I've already described, our freedom, our fallenness, the powers of evil, the, the complexity of the fallenness of time and space, like all, all of these dynamics at play mean that in history, we experience that fullness always only partially. It breaks through in part. We know in part, but not because the action is partial, not because God is pulling his punches or only using some of his powers, so to speak. Right? That, right. that is mythology. Yeah. And it's unworthy of God. Yeah. Well, we'll end there. I mean, we could go a thousand other directions and this is a, obviously a huge, huge conversation. Um, Thank you so much again for coming on. This was a real joy, and um, hopefully we can we can interact again someday. Uh, that would be that'd be a joy. I would love that. So yeah, yeah, anytime. 